Amen. Okay, well, today marks uh, the first day of Advent season, and subsequently the first message in our Advent sermon series as we turn our attention toward Christmas. Now, we've observed this season for some four years now, and so you guys know how it goes. It is a time of waiting and expectation and, above all, prayer. We look back to Jesus' arrival, of which we're coming to celebrate, and we look forward also to his return. And therefore, such themes of waiting, of expectation, and of prayer are fitting for the season. And I find that the best place to tap into the Advent spirit is in the Psalms, particularly the Psalms about longing and waiting, the Psalms that express pleas for deliverance, like the songs of Mary and Zacharias that we find in the Gospel of Luke. These Psalms, the ones which we're going to spend our time in, express or put us in a profound state of expectation. And so it's our plan in the coming weeks um, to make the prayers of the Psalms our own prayers. Again, which is quite fitting because that is what the Psalms are. They are the church's prayer book. The Psalms are not David's private prayer journal made public for us to read, But from the outset, they were crafted with the entire congregation in mind. These were songs to be sung in the temple, in pilgrimage, as the people of Israel traveled to Jerusalem. They were to be sung on holy days in celebration. The Psalms were the people's songs, intended to shape them and to teach them how to pray. And so it is for us. The Psalms are to be internalized in our lives to such a degree that their language and patterns and teaching would become second nature to us, that they would become our own. And so our prayers are not left freewheeling and aimless, but they're given a purpose and a direction in these inspired words. And so our prayers don't impose upon the Psalms, but the reverse. And their teaching, we learn to pray. We learn what to pray. And we learn how to be praying people. And so we're going to spend this Advent season in what we'll call the Advent Psalms. Those particular Psalms that teach us to seek and to expect deliverance. The only deliverance that comes in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so our first Advent psalm this morning is Psalm 6. And it begins, verses 1 and 3, this way. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed, and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord... How long? The crux of the psalm is there in verse 3. But you, O Lord, how long? We cannot be too sure about the historical situation described here. The details elude us, but 
it seems to be self-inflicted. David complains that his bones are dismayed and that his soul is greatly dismayed. And it stems from what he perceives to be the Lord's displeasure. Do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. That much is clear, but the situation becomes somewhat obscure as we continue. We jump ahead toward the end of the psalm, verses 8 and 10. Again, David says, Depart from me, all you who do iniquity. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. A few questions confront us. Who are these enemies? Is David referring to his sin or to actual people? Is the anger that he experiences upon him something internal or external? Is it a tortured conscience or is it the people set against him? Now, interpreters have taken both sides and have, in fact, invented even more. But it seems to me that we don't have enough information to decide one way or the other, to understand exactly what's happening in David's situation. And that's fine. Because when it comes to the Psalms, the historical details are, in fact, a secondary matter. They are deliberately left open-ended and ambiguous on many points, For a simple reason, and that is that they may be as widely applicable as possible. So it it matters less that we get to the bottom of the situation, and more that we attend as closely as possible to the words that have been given to us, to the words that David has written down. And what we find, regardless of the actual situation, are words that we can all relate to, namely... This experience of waiting, of raising our voices for rescue while none seems to come. Now, David is not shy about his terrible condition. His soul is deeply disturbed and it's bled over into his body too. He is pining away, he says. It's a very descriptive term which means to become thin or weak because of sadness or loss. Now, we've either been there or know or known someone in such a condition, so heartsick that even their body begins to deteriorate. And as bad as that is, right, as tough as David's situation is, something still worse plagues him. But you, O Lord, he says, how long? He chronicles his pain and seems to indicate that it would be tolerable If only the Lord were by his side. If only he had the assurance that the Lord was there, but he can find no such assurance. In fact, it seems to be the opposite. The most difficult burden to bear in all this, even unbearable, is not whatever's happening within his body and soul, but the Lord's absence or his perceived absence. There is almost a sense of betrayal and shock in David's words. But you, O Lord, how long? Now, most have been there. Hard times come, 
But an almost palpable sense of the divine presence and goodness bears us up. It feels that we can endure anything. And then there are those dark days when any such presence or goodness seems to have forsaken us. Now it's the same whether we are the source of our problems or not. And again, it matters not what the problem is. The matter, the heart of this psalm, is the Lord's silence. And that's the hardest thing to bear up under. Crying for help, looking to the Lord, and yet receiving what feels like a deafening silence. Now, Advent season, the season that we enter into today, is something like a forced entrance into that silence. And again, I deliberately use the word Advent rather than Christmas because it's wider. It encompasses not only Jesus' once coming, but his future coming to the human race. And so during this time of year, we put ourselves in Israel's situation, and we sing the famous hymns, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. But we recognize that it's our situation as well, that we too mourn in lonely exile until the Son of God return. And so David's prayer is really the prayer of this season. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord. That's our prayer. This time is the time of year where we set the way things are against the way things should be. We hold up God's own promises to Him. Restoration, triumph over evil, justice and peace and righteousness. And we cry out, Lord Jesus, save now. And so Advent is a time of intercession for the world, for our neighbors, for ourselves, a time where, dare I say, we protest the Lord's silence. How long, Lord? Hear us. And we're tempted to think that such prayers, but you, O Lord, how long, issue from a faltering faith. That those words are the expression of someone who's given up hope and someone who's succumbed to despair in their lives. How long? But it's really the opposite. Only a soul that expects deliverance can pray such a prayer. Only faith can utter such wounded words. If David did not have faith, and he did not expect the Lord to rescue him, he could hardly pray these words. He wouldn't be praying at all. He would have given up. But he prays and cries out with such wounded bewilderment, not because he lacks, but because he has faith. He knows the Lord, and he has come to trust in him as his redeemer and refuge, but he cannot find him. This is faith's prayer when an answer has been delayed. When it doesn't hear God's voice. But you, O Lord, how long? Answer me. Hear me. It's a sign of faith's strength and not the opposite. And the thing to fear in such situations is not this prayer, but no prayer. In these words, faith is vigorous. It's looking for an answer. 
But no words, no prayer is a telltale sign that faith has succumbed to unbelief. If faith fails, prayer fails. Because who prays for what they don't believe? You remember Luke's remarks about a parable that Jesus told. Luke said he was telling them this, Jesus was, to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. That at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. David, though he had every opportunity, had not lost heart. It is because he believed in the Lord's goodness that he prayed how long, and not in spite of it. And we can trick ourselves sometimes into thinking that our prayerlessness about a certain person or thing in our lives is something other than what it is, a very real unbelief in the Lord's goodness that he hears and that he answers our prayers. Could it be that we do not pray, but you, O Lord, how long? Not because our faith is so strong, but because our faith is so weak. And the prayer seemingly turned away. Anyone who's been in that situation of silence, a desperate plea of theirs denied, or seemingly denied, has that effect. Silence is like a poison that eats away at faith from the inside. Its integrity and stability corroded from within. And of course, our faith is limited. It's sustained by God, but limited. It can only make the same request so many times before it becomes weary. And the silence silences it. Confident supplications give way to apprehensive requests, which give way to discouraged pleas, which give way to desperate cries, which ultimately give way to defeated silence. We're no longer even praying, how long, O Lord? Because we feel the answer that we seek will never come. But Advent is a time, this season is a time when our faith receives a shot in the arm. The Lord hears and answers, as we will see. He is coming. He encourages our discouraged hearts to once again pray those same words. How long? Return, O Lord. Those words on our lips are our faith persevering, our faith fighting to obtain that which it believes. And so we're daunted by the silence, but the Lord teaches us to press through it, to pray always and to not lose heart. And that's what this season is all about. Though the answer seems far off, it's not. Though it seems like all is dark and all is bad and evil, Advent tells us it's not. Jesus is coming. Do this, knowing the time, the Apostle Paul says, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And so the prayer... David's prayer, but you, O Lord, how long? Also indicates 
But David refuses to find help or rescue in anyone or anything but the Lord. He will not settle for a counterfeit salvation. He will not seek a substitute strength. He doesn't look elsewhere, but he says, But you, O Lord, how long? He knows that apart from the Lord, there is no salvation. And that whatever he might turn to will only lead him back to this same place. Thou must save, and thou alone. And so he refuses to look for strength and deliverance in anything but the Lord, and most especially himself. We find in the king not even the slightest hint of resilience or toughness, but instead an utter helplessness, a complete brokenness. And indeed, his situation calls for it. He finds himself at the very doorstep of death. Verse 5 of our psalm, he says, For there is no mention of you in death, and in Sheol, who will give you thanks? Now, it's somewhat of a bargain that the king attempts to make with God. If you don't rescue me, I'm going to die. And there I cannot mention your name, nor give you praise. It's an agonized plea and not necessarily dogmatic theology. And who hasn't in such desperate situations, situation, a desperate situation, resulted to similar tactics? Now, we're, un- we're meant to understand Um, his desperate situation. And that unless God comes through, the king will be no more. And so there's no self-help in in such a situation. It's useless to devise his own rescue. And he does the opposite. Rather than picking himself up by trying to encourage himself, he wallows in his weakness. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. Now, to be quite honest, David's words seem over the top to our sensibilities. I have some foggy memory about reading the Psalms for the first time and being taken back by their vulnerability, and their desperation. I'd never encountered anything quite like that anywhere in my life before coming to the Psalms. And in fact, I heard a story not too long ago about someone who got their unbelieving father-in-law to read the Psalms for the first time. And his reaction was to say that, that David sure is a complainer, right? And I think that's a, a pretty common response, We read the Psalms and we're taken back by the desperation. It strikes us all as a bit too dramatic for our tough frontiersman kind of attitude. And normally, the Psalms' more desperate moments like that are chalked up to the emotional makeup of the particular author, in this case, David. He is just given to extreme heights and desperate lows with a good dose of poetic exaggeration to bring it home. And while it is true that David is that kind of person, he certainly is that kind of person, I wonder, though, if there is more to learn from his words. And I think there is. If the Psalms are inspired, and of course they are, 
then even their more dramatic moments are inspired too. And what are we supposed to learn? Only something that we've already noted. Salvation does not come from us. It may seem dramatic to us, but maybe that's because we're too strong, too reliant upon our own reservoirs. If I'm slightly embarrassed by David, maybe it's because my pride. I'm not ready to accept my own weakness in the same manner. I'm still too sure of myself to put myself in his shoes. And so this psalm in particular and the Advent season in general teach us to put away our strength. We're looking for God's strength. And God does not need our strength. He can do nothing with it. Human strength works its own salvation. It works its own plans. It has its own agenda. And it has nothing to do with the Spirit's work. God's work requires one thing from us, our weakness. We cry for deliverance, and it must be accompanied by the acceptance of our weakness, that we cannot achieve our own salvation. And when we accept our weakness, it's necessarily accompanied by these cries for deliverance. And so we put away our false humility and come to God in true humility. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And again, it's a matter of faith. If our rescue is up to us, and we cannot look outside ourselves for help, then we cannot afford to show weakness. We must be strong. We have to be strong. But then, that strength is our only strength, and not another. But, if our salvation isn't up to us, and it truly lies in the Lord's mighty hands, then only, and then not only can we afford to show weakness, but we ought to. Our weakness, whatever else might be said of it, is our openness to genuine rescue. As long as we're relying on our strength, the salvation, the strength of God has not come, and it can be no other way. And so another word for weakness is waiting. Another word for weakness is waiting. Because we trust in ourselves, supposing that at the end of it all, it is up to us, we're busy working our own rescue. Now, our activity and ingenuity are not always, but very much can be, manifestations of unbelief. The notion that our action is the decisive thing. That it all comes down to us. However, we wait because we understand that salvation does not come from our own working. I'm not going to do this, but the Lord. His action is the decisive thing. Thou must save and thou alone. In another Psalm 27, David says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Our strength is not the kind of strength that bursts into action, that goes about delivering itself. Our strength is the kind of strength that waits on the Lord's action. It's a different kind of strength. It waits on the Lord's action, the only saving action there is. 
In fact, in his sermon on this psalm, Augustine ventured an interpretation of the Lord's silence based on this. He says, Who does not see represented here a soul struggling with her diseases, but long kept back by the physician that she may be convinced uh, what evils she has plunged herself into through sin? For what is easily healed is not much avoided, but from the difficulty of the healing, there will be the more careful keeping of recovered health. In other words, Augustine submits, and I think it's maybe as good an answer as any, that God delays to answer the king's prayers because he wants to convince him of his own weakness. God tarries. He allows David to be in silence because in tearing, David is permitted to struggle with his weakness. He comes to understand the depth of his weakness and eventually to forsake all his trust in it. And so, having been granted healing after so great a struggle, he'll be more careful not to plunge himself into the same sin. The scripture says that God gives grace to the humble but resists the proud. And as long as we stand in pride, God is right to leave us to our struggles. That is, till we humble ourselves and so become fit to receive grace. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, the Apostle Paul wrote, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that, listen, we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. Now, it cannot be everyone's circumstance, but surely it may be someone's. The Lord has not answered our prayers, nor granted us the deliverance we seek, because some modicum of self-trust remains in us. He may bring us to the very doors of death to teach us to trust in Him who raises the dead. Human toughness and resilience have their place, but not before the Lord. That's the one place they don't belong. Instead, we boast in our weakness for when we are weak, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, then we're strong. And so, at last, in making peace with our weakness, that all our hope is in the Lord and nowhere else, we learn to pray true prayers. We can pray like David does. Look at verse 4. Sense the desperation and the plea here. Return, O Lord. Rescue my soul. Save me. Save me because of your loving kindness. Now, there are times in our lives when we're brought to that moment. Horrible things, terrible situation where we cry out like that. But it's our aim to always have this type of dependence upon the Lord. Because streaks of self-trust remain in us, our prayer often falls short of this. Our prayers are too modest and not desperate enough. We pray for some help, uh, doors to open here and a little assistance there, but not these words, not these words of abandon, rescue me, save me. And of course, if we knew our true situation, how desperate things really were, it would not be so. And so this Advent season, the encouragement is to pray these words. 
Oh, Lord, rescue me. Save me. I don't need just a little bit of help. I don't need just a little assistance, a little direction. I need you to save me. So regardless our situation, whether the problems that confront us are great or small, this is the only way to pray. Forsaking all else and casting ourselves entirely upon God's mercy. We need complete and total rescue from him who raises the dead. And then, after all that, seemingly almost out of nowhere comes this. Verses 8 and 10. David says, Depart from me, all you who do iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. All mine enemies will be greatly ashamed, will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. Thus far, The psalm has been nothing but desperation and despair. And then suddenly, like a bolt from the blue, this shot of confidence. It's a jarring turn in the psalm, anticipated by nothing before it. This psalm, Psalm 6, is not like other psalms where there's a slow progression from the depths. Through the darkness and then ultimately into the light. Where the psalmist, there's some turning point and he says, and then I remembered the Lord. I remembered the Lord's promises and then that slowly brings him out. This is different. It's darkness, and then in the very next moment, light. And I can describe you know, this dramatic turn as nothing other than prophetic. It's, it's not a word that emerges slowly from within David's circumstances, that issues from some unforeseen possibility in his situation, but it's a word that interrupts from the outside. It's totally incongruous. It doesn't fit with what's come before. And the only hint that we can find that anticipates this reversal is again in verse 4, where David says, Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your, because of your loving kindness. The actual deliverance still awaits. They shall turn back. They will be ashamed. Yet, The king makes his declaration with boldness because his victory issues not from himself, not from his situation, but the Lord's loving kindness. Though everything about his situation points in the opposite direction and tells quite a different story, he's able to defy it all because his rescue is not limited to his situation. It doesn't birth forth from human springs, but comes from eternal springs. God's loving kindness creates its own situation. Now, David's situation is prophetic. He looks forward. Ours, not so much. He looked ahead, awaiting a rescue yet to come. We look back upon a rescue already accomplished. David anticipated a time when the silence would be broken and his how long would be no more, when his faith would become sight. Now we stand on the opposite side of that spectrum. His future tense, my enemies shall be turned back, they will depart from me. His future tense is our past tense, already done, already accomplished. David's prayer, how long, 
our prayer, how long? Indeed, the entire world's prayer, how long, has been answered in God's yes and amen. In the word, become flesh. And hidden with every desperate prayer, within every person's how long, buried deep within that request is a fear that the Lord's silence, or rather, is a fear that the the Lord's silence imposes upon us. And that fear is that the Lord is other than who we said he is. When his answer waits, when it tarries, room and our heart is made where these seeds of doubt can be sown. And we wonder, does God really hear that behind the silence is not a wise and benevolent God, but in fact, our hearts would tell us sometimes a cruel and indifferent one who turns away our desperate prayer for no other reason than that he's disinterested in hearing it. And our hearts grow faint at the possibility. Our faith is undermined immediately by the thought that the Lord doesn't want to hear. But no matter what temporal silence is imposed on us, no matter how long that how long is, it's been shattered already in God's resounding yes and amen in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Though we cannot make sense of the silence in our lives, we have, with David's confidence, definitive and clinching proof that silence is not the bottom line because God has already spoken. All our prayers and hopes and dreams have been answered in the Son of God come to men in Christmas Day. And so Jesus' incarnation, Him making His home with us, is God's yes. His definitive yes. And His death and resurrection is God's resounding amen. We say with greater confidence than the King, depart from me, my enemies. The Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. And even when we can't pray, we know that our weeping has a voice before the Lord. And so whatever this silent is, however long it may last, it's not a no. But concealed within it is a yes. For, the Apostle Paul tells us, as many promises of God in Christ, they are yes. They are yes and amen. And so we look backward. Again, what our season is all about. We look backward to God's yes to his answer to our prayers in his son, Jesus Christ, and we encourage our hearts and we bolster our faith while we patiently wait and diligently look for his yes to return. On that day, when our yes returns, then our prayers will have been accomplished. Our amen, the last word, will have been spoken. Of course, amen means let it be or so be it. And on that day, our let it be will have turned into it is. It's accomplished. The silence, the how long will be no more, and the Lord will have returned. And so till then, we take courage and we wait upon the Lord. And David's threefold invocation reminds us of something. Again, verses 8 and 9. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping, 
The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. The Lord's threefold, or rather the king's threefold confidence, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, anticipates ours. The Lord, Jesus Christ, our high priest, sits at the right hand of God and intercedes for us that our prayers would be heard and find a place among the Father. The Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord, the Holy Spirit within us, intercedes for our weakness, transforming our groanings too deep for words into eloquent eloquent prayers before the Father. The Lord has heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord, the Father and source of all things, on account of the intercession of the Son and the Spirit, hears and accepts our prayers. The Lord receives my prayer. Therefore, looking to that day when God pronounces his final yes upon our prayers in the return of his Son, in the confidence and strength that comes from him, we boast over our enemies. All mine enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. So as we prepare to share together in the Lord's Supper, I want to give you some time to present your cares and burdens for the Lord and to wait upon him, to lift up your own how long in anticipation of his yes in silence while... The music price. Do that now.